chapter 7, starting in verse 14 through 16. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you now to minister to us, your people. Good shepherd, feed your sheep. And I, and I pray, Lord, for your anointing to preach this service, Lord, to be led by you. God, people don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. So I pray that you would cause me to be led by your spirit as I preach. And God, uh, bring conviction where there's conviction. Bring uh, freedom where freedom needs to, be, uh, needs to happen, Lord. God, do a, a miracle in the preaching of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, way back when I was at Crossfire, we used to have a ministry with the Department of Corrections. And I used to go to this place where young uh, men from the two youth prisons in the state of Wisconsin used to go. And... Um, it was, uh, it was uh, my opportunity to go there and I could actually share the gospel with them. And um, the kids had to be 16 or younger. And most of them, a lot of them, were from the inner cities uh, of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Madison, uh, Janesville, places like that. And there were a lot of gang members in that group. And I always, uh, I remember my first platoon, they, they were divided by platoons. It was the very first time I was there. And there was a young man named Arturo. And I noticed something on him I didn't know before. He had three dots next to his eye. And some of them, some of these young men had uh, tattooed teardrops. And I asked him, you know, me being me, I just said, what does that stuff mean? And the one guy said, the teardrops are for uh, my guys that have died. And the dots are for people I killed. And I remember... Uh, this young man, Arturo, had three dots uh, by his eye. And I, I shared the gospel. You know, I talked about how God can forgive, how the blood of Christ is stronger than any sin that we've ever committed. And I remember, got to the place where we were. I said, if you want to, if you have any questions, raise your hand. And this young man raised his hand. And he said this to me. There are probably about 15 other young men there. And he said, are you telling me, are you telling me that God can forgive me even though I killed people and sent them to hell? Wow. And I remember saying, God's grace is greater. The blood of Jesus is stronger than anything. It can forgive anything that you have done. Anything. If you repent and you give your life to Christ. And that's the story of 2 Samuel, the, the kicking point in 2 Samuel, isn't it? What we find is that God is gracious to forgive even heinous sins when we truly repent. God is able to do that. That's the story of 2 Samuel. 
What we see in 2 Samuel, as I said last week, is that originally 1 and 2 Samuel were one book. So it makes sense that 2 Samuel immediately picks up where 1 Samuel left off, immediately. And um, we don't know the author, because if you remember last week, in, I think it was 1 Samuel chapter 25 is when Samuel died. So obviously he couldn't have written it after that because he's dead. Uh, but they believe Samuel wrote uh, 1 Samuel, or at least the majority of it, and the prophet Nathan probably and, and another individual probably wrote 2 Samuel, just so we know who the author was. And what 2 Samuel does is it recounts David's reign as king. It's called the Golden Age of Israel. And it went between uh, one, uh, 1010 and 970 B.C., before Christ. Take a look. Here's the outline of 2 Samuel, just a real quick general outline. Chapters 1 through 10 are David's triumphs, chapters 11 through 20, David's troubles, and then chapters 21 through 24, it's a non-chronological appendix of the events of David's reign, is a picture of what it is. And what you'll notice is that chapter 11 starts David's troubles. And that's the chapter that divides the book of 2 Samuel and also is a dividing line in King David's life as well. Incredible, incredible chapter. Probably one of the the saddest chapters in the entire Bible is 2 Samuel chapter 11. Take a look in verses 1 through 5. We're going to do a lot of reading because i got to get you all caught up. You know the story. Everybody knows the story. But we still want to look at God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 11, numerous verses here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent messengers, took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. When she, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The story of Bathsheba. And then, verse 13, David invited him, Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, But he did not go down to his house. So David got him drunk in hopes that he'd go home, sleep with his wife, and then he could, the pregnancy would be blamed on him, or not blamed on him, but accounted to him. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He sent Uriah with his own death certificate, death warrant. Isn't that incredible? When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here's King David, man after God's own heart. One of the saddest chapters in, in the Bible. He saw a woman and lusted after her. He indulged his passion. And she became pregnant. The reason I put verse 1 in here 
is in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, but David remained in Jerusalem. You see, David was in a place where he shouldn't have been. David was in a place where he shouldn't have been. He should have been at war. That's where kings were supposed to go. And so many times, isn't that how we fall into our sin? We're in a place we shouldn't be, okay? That happens so many times to people. Well, I'm just going to, you know, it's not a big deal. And you know you shouldn't be there. You know you shouldn't be in this place, but you go anyway. And before you know it, you fall into sin. It was one of the things I saw in this particular section of Scripture. So David lays with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He doesn't control her, his lusts. And uh, then he calls her husband in to cover up his sin. Uriah, come on over. Hey, you know, you've been doing a bang-up job on the front there, uh, you know, killing the enemy or whatever. Uh, just take some time with your wife. No, I can't do that. My buddies are out there dying. I can't go to be with my wife. David goes, okay, I got another plan. I'll get him drunk. So David gets him drunk. Still, Uriah wouldn't go to his wife. So he sends Uriah to the battlefront with his own, his own uh, death certificate, death warrant, whatever you want to call it. And he goes to battle and Joab pulls back and lets Uriah die. That's, that's plenty right there, isn't it? But then David, to cover up his sin, tries to make himself look like the good guy. Oh, this poor guy's wife, he's dead. I'll take her into my house. Look at the nice guy I am. What a great king I am. I'll bring her in and marry her. And they had a child. You see, this King David. And you think about the, the length, the, the time frame here of when he lusted to when he married Bathsheba. It's a long time. Nine months at least, longer. He tried to cover it up. So here we have King David, a shepherd, a musician, an adulterer, a murderer, and a liar. You know, we try to hide our sin as well, don't we? Because we're afraid of the shame. It's difficult to admit, I've sinned. And what God did in God's kindness and in God's love God exposed David's sin and he disciplined David because the word of God says that he disciplines those he loves and that's what he did with David. And when David was confronted with his sin, he did something different than what Saul did. Remember last week when Saul was confronted with his sin? God said, hey, you wipe out everything and Saul said, well, you know, it was the people. I, they, they wanted some of this stuff. David is confronted with his sin and what he does is he immediately repents. He immediately repents. And he received God's grace. Take a look at God's word again, the rest of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is the prophet Nathan speaking to David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Remember, Nathan goes in there and he talks to him about a, a, a guy who only had one sheep. Remember that story? He only had one sheep. And this other guy had all kinds of sheep, and the guy had all kinds of sheep, took the guy's one sheep. And David said, he should, he should face the death penalty, that guy. And then the prophet says, you're that man. 
David. Go read it if you didn't get a chance to. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. God forgave David, even though in Leviticus, the law said that what David did deserved death. That was the just punishment for David, death. And yet the prophet comes and says, God has forgiven you. The Lord has put away your sin. How could that be? Because Jesus would bear David's sin on the cross. Say, well, wait a minute. Jesus didn't even, wasn't even here yet. How can that be? Well, that's just the other side of the coin for your life. Jesus died for your sins before you were ever created, right? This is just the other side. See, we forget that, yeah, that's how it works in God's kingdom. God doesn't live in linear time. And so Jesus would die for David's sin. That's how God could put it away. David had faith that a Messiah was coming. And so what we find is that God was able to put aside David's sin, though he deserved death because of the cross, because of what Christ was going to do for him. We see this over and over in the New Testament listed about the Old Testament saints and what happened. Then we take a look at God's word here, first, or 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him, the Father made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. It's about Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. In Psalm 51, I put Psalm 51 here and I wanted you to see the lead into Psalm 51. Because if you have a Bible, it describes this and it says this, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. In other words, this is David's prayer after being confronted by Nathan and repenting. Psalm 51, incredible psalm. Go read it. And, And when you put it in the context of when it was written, when God put this on David's heart and he wrote this psalm, it just, it, it's incredible how much it speaks to God's forgiveness and our guilt. Look at this. Uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from, from my sin. Read Psalm 51 now with the understanding that David wrote this after Nathan confronted him and he had repented and said, I'm guilty. And then 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is Paul writing. Okay, He's saying, I am the worst sinner ever. So if you think you're the worst sinner ever, Paul is going to have a discussion with you in heaven. He's going to say, no, the Spirit of God caused me to write that I'm the foremost. Why? Because he would kill Christians. He would oversee the killing of Christians, I should say. Look at this. 
Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. What is it? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. He's saying, I deserve God's punishment more than anyone because of what I, what I have done. I don't know what you have done, but if you feel like you're too guilty that God can't forgive you, Paul's saying, I'm the foremost. I took Christians' lives. I was responsible for that, to oversee that. And he said, and you know why God had mercy on it? Look at this, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. As an example for you and I. When the enemy comes in and says, you committed a sin that cannot be forgiven. Maybe it's Satanism. Maybe you've murdered someone. Maybe an abortion. I don't know what it was. But if there's something so heavy on you that you say, I can't be forgiven, then I'm here to tell you you can be because the scripture says so. Paul says so. God's spirit says so. You see, God's grace and forgiveness were so great that he could restore a person like King David who committed adultery, who murdered, had a, a, a woman's husband murdered, who then lied about it and tried to make it look like he was the good guy out of the deal when he was the guy that was the reason behind it all. And God could forgive him. God could forgive Paul. And the same forgiveness is available to all who repent. All who repent. Regardless of the amount of your sin, regardless of the heinousness of your sin, God can forgive. Christ and his sacrifice are greater than your sin. That's the gospel, people. That's gospel forgiveness. It's the power of the gospel that God can forgive people like you and I. And we sometimes look at David and go, oh, I haven't been that bad. Your sin in God's eyes is just as heinous. See, that's what we forget. We classify and we just kind of think, well, that's not as bad as this. And yet God's word says, this is, this is sin in my eyes. I'm perfect and I'm holy. And I say that if you lie, that's sin. And we like to excuse it. God says, it's one of the ten. So what happens is, is we like to categorize and we forget that all sin is heinous to God. That's an offense against the holy God. But I get the understanding that when we look at it, there is certain sin that, that seems to affect people a lot worse. And that's what we're talking about here. But God can forgive it all. That's how powerful the gospel is. How great the cross is. And what we see in 2 Samuel is this, that anybody can fall. Anybody can fall. King David was just soaring with the Lord, and then boom. Anyone can fall. But we need to know that if we have, that there's forgiveness for us. And I love this. Those who love Jesus are not perfect but they're repentant. So if you've fallen in an area of sin, I don't know if it's heinous or not, but if you've fallen in an area of sin and you love Jesus and the enemy's whispering in your ear saying, God can't forgive you for that. You knew better. You were raised in the church, boy. 
And you shouldn't have done that. You know what? Anybody can fall. Anyone can fall. But we come to God and we just say, God, forgive me. Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin, all of it. Please forgive me. So I would challenge you today, if the Spirit of God is pricking your heart and there's something that you you feel the weight of that sin, not just the, the big stuff from our perspective, but what about unforgiveness in your heart? What about bitterness? What about greed? You know, how much it controls our lives. You know, and you know just been a battle. Ask God to forgive you. Let's pray right now. Lord, we come before you, Lord, and and you know our hearts. And if there's any way that you're pricking our hearts now for an area that we just feel we're so guilty that you could never forgive us for that, Lord, would would you invade that heart and let them know that there's nothing so great that the blood of Jesus can't cover it? And Lord, if it's any other sin that is just binding, God, would you bring repentance, bring forgiveness, set that captive free, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, another thing we learn about this in this story, and this is a hard one, really difficult one, is this lesson, that God forgives, but he doesn't always remove the painful consequences of that sin in this life. Take a look again at God's word. 2 Samuel, this is the prophet speaking, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. That's Nathan talking to King David. In verse 14, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You see, there's consequences to our sin. Even when we repent, even when we repent, it's part of what uh, God does to bring us to a place of dependence upon him. The child that was conceived in Bathsheba died. And from this point on, there was no peace for the rest of King David's reign. His kingdom and his family fell into chaos. There were consequences. And there are consequences in our lives too. People make, you know, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you make a decision and all of a sudden you're suffering the consequences of that and you repent to God and, and he, for, he forgives and, and He restores your relationship with Him and then what happens is you still have the consequences many times. That's just the way it is. And it's not because God is angry, it's just, it's part of life. And God is teaching us, you know what, be careful with sin. Don't mess with sin. But you know what the great news is, again, in Second Samuel? Is that yes, we sin, and there's forgiveness, and there's consequences. But it is amazing. It is amazing how many God, times God takes our mistakes, how many times God takes our sin and turns it into something beautiful. You ever think about that? Do you know who the next child was born of David and Bathsheba? King Solomon. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that just God? That's just so God. You know, he says to David, okay, David, here's the cost, and, you know, there's some discipline here, but know that I still love you. Know that I can take 
what the, the term is, I can uh, make beauty from ashes. And so King Solomon is the next one. Wow, what a God we serve. He loves us enough to discipline us, to correct us. And he's not like some person who just holds it against us, you know. He says, you know what, it's done. I'm still going to bless you. I still love you. And he gives King Solomon or Solomon to David. And then we find another sin of David's in chapter 24. David buys a field and some other things. And that field that David bought, he numbered the people. That was another sin that David did in 2 Samuel that's recorded. And the field that David bought became the site for the temple of Solomon. Today, it's the temple mound, and it's occupied by the Dome of the Rock. You see, I brought that in because of this. As amazing as this story is, as amazing as it is, as we see God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness, I think, this is my personal opinion, I think there's a greater reflection of the incredible love of God, the depth of His forgiveness, His amazing grace, and it happened 10 years before this. 10 years before this. And the reason why I say to me it it seems even greater is because when God did this, he knew David was going to fall 10 years later. He knew it. Incredible, incredible. Just kind of like us, isn't it? What we find, where we find this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Take a look. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him the rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said, this is King David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I bought, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. What happened is that out of gratitude for all that God had done, David wanted to build God a permanent house, a temple. And God said no. God said no. In part because David was a man of war. And God told him no. But God responded with something that is so incredible. God responds to David. He says, no, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make you four of them, at least in this Davidic covenant. I'm going to make you an unconditional covenant, David. I'm going to make promises to you. Ten years before, he knew what David was going to do. Ten years before, he says, I'm going to make you this unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant means this. It doesn't depend on something the other person does. It depends solely on the person who is making the covenant. It's unconditional. I will do this regardless of what you do. I will do this. I'm making you this promise. It's an unconditional covenant. And that's what the Davidic covenant is. And that's what we find in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. God responds in this way. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. There will be a king, and he will be your, your son, and he will be a king. That's part of the promise. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's the one that's going to build my temple, not you, David. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the promise God made to David. I want to build you a temple. No, but I'm going to build you a house, David. It's going to be forever. Four promises that David would have a son who would rule after him, and that son would build a temple, and his descendants would be kings, and their kingdom would never end, and God would never take mercy away from David's house. Did you know that's talking about you and I? Because that was fulfilled in the new covenant. You see, the Davidic covenant foreshadows the fulfillment of what we call the new covenant that God made with all of his people. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are part of the family of God. You are part of that family that God is talking about in the new covenant. And he made a promise to David, my mercy shall never leave him. Never. And that kingdom will be established forever. Do you know how that covenant was fulfilled? How God fulfilled that promise that he made to David? He fulfilled that promise in Christ. Take a look at God's word. Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And it, of his kingdom there will be no end. Talking about Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 13, 22 through 23... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, this, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. You see how the Old Testament and New Testament work together? You see how it's not two different gods, an angry God in the Old Testament, a loving God in the New Testament? It's one God. And it's love throughout the word of God. Yes, there's discipline there. But there's love of God being described here, displayed here. It's incredible, the Davidic covenant and the promise that God made to all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus' kingdom would never end. It would be eternal. And the mercy that God would show to the people in the kingdom of God, in Jesus' kingdom. Mercy for you and I. Never-ending mercy. We know what we deserve. But 
God's mercy is there and his grace is there because he made a promise and it's an unconditional covenant to you. It's about God. It always has been. It always will be. It'll be about God and his greatness and his goodness. That's the incredible thing of the gospel, that it's about God. And so now we walk in obedience, not out of obligation to earn God's favor. We walk in obedience because we love God. And he would do this for me? A sinner like me? How could I not want to live in a way that honors him? I'm not trying to earn his favor. I have it already. But I can walk in it by God's grace and God's mercy. Through David's line, God planned to bless the entire world. When God said that to David, that was part of his plan from the beginning, from the foundations of the world. And he made that promise to David. He said, I'm telling you, it's coming. Trust, trust. Jesus, the descendant of the king of David, has an everlasting kingdom over God's people. You and I, if you know Jesus today. And his death and resurrection ensure that there will only be mercy, not judgment, for all Christians. That is great news. Doesn't mean we won't suffer consequences for our sin. Doesn't mean God won't discipline us. But God's grace and God's mercy are flowing to us all the time. That's who our God is. And God made new covenant promises with you, knowing all your failures in advance. He knew. He knew. He still made a promise to you way back then when you gave your life to Christ. He made promises. And he knew, just like David, 10 years before he said, David, I promise you, I'll never take my hand off of you. You you know, your kingdom is going to be forever. And I'm going to bless you in spite of you. He knew what David was going to do. He knew what you were going to do. Yet his grace and his mercy were still extended to you. And that can't be taken away. You can't screw up the love of God towards you. Do you realize that? You can't screw it up. Because that would mean that you're greater than God and His grace and His mercy. That's an amazing, amazing truth. But Dan, you don't know what I did. I don't. But God does. And He called you and He chose you before you did any of that stuff. God is gracious to forgive even heinous sins when we truly repent. There's forgiveness there for all of us, for you today. And what should be your response? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? I mean, we know that we receive that. I was so, one of the things that caught me off guard this week when I was preparing a sermon is David's response to this. It was always there, but for whatever reason, it just didn't lock down into my heart. And I thought, this is my prayer, God. The response to God making these promises to David. Take a look at it. It's beautiful. Then King David went in and sat down before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? that you have brought me thus far. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. What? That you'd save me? Who am I? Who am I, God, that you'd make these promises in David's perspective? You made these promises that my kingdom would be eternal. Who am I? I don't deserve this. God, 
Are you kidding me? David understood the magnitude. He didn't understand the end game, but he understood the magnitude of the promise. And he said, who am I? God, and yet as great as this promise is, now he's bragging on the greatness of his God. This is a small thing for you. You ever think about that, about your own salvation? From our perspective, we go, are you kidding me, God? What is it, what is it that, that you would have a thought of me even, God? That you made all these promises to me, that your mercy would never leave me. God, that I would be with you for eternity in heaven. That you would give all the promises that come with the gospel. And you go, that is so huge, God. Who am I that I, I don't deserve this? I know I don't. But you would give this to me. And yet, God, from your perspective, is such a small thing. Doesn't that show the magnitude of God? the greatness of God, all the people that are saved, and we're one of them. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you're one of them. And it's so huge for you. And God says, yes, I know. It brings me great glory. And yet, it's a small thing for God in the sense that what he is doing is so great. Not to diminish our sin, but it is so great of what God is doing. And yet, we're a part of that. Lord, I worship you. I praise you. I thank you. I proclaim the greatness of you, Lord God. Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. That's just what David's doing here. He's overwhelmed by God. Are you overwhelmed by God? Are you overwhelmed by God and the promises that he has made to you? Unconditional covenant with you. And he will never renege on that. It is about him and his glory and his greatness, the power of the cross and the shed blood of Jesus. What a beautiful picture. We're like King David. Look at this verse too. I love this, Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Shouldn't that be our prayer as well? We're like King David so many ways. He was a shepherd. You're a whatever. I'm a pastor. Maybe you're an engineer or a teacher or I don't know what. Maybe you're a mom. That's a lot of work there. Don't diminish that ministry. Don't diminish that job. David was a musician and a soldier. He was an outcast. You see, David understands what it's like to be reje rejected by people as well, just as Christ David was a king and an adulterer and a murderer and a liar. And he was a brokenhearted old man. But he was always a lover of God. He was always a lover of God. He was a man after God's own heart. Is what the Bible describes him as. Not because he was perfect, but because he confessed his imperfections. And throughout his troubles, throughout all the hard times, the difficult things that happened... David's heart was always humble and penitent and trusting, even when God was disciplining him. And my prayer for all of us is this. May God create such a heart in each of us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of your word. We see your grace and your mercy reflected in so many things.
Lord, right in front of us, just a beautiful example of your greatness and your goodness, making the Davidic promise, even knowing what David would do just 10 short years later. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your promises. God, thank you that there's no sin so great that you cannot forgive it when we repent and that heaven is wide open for all who would receive the gift of salvation. So I pray, God, if there's any lost within the sound of my voice, they would receive that gift of salvation today, Lord, based on what you have done and not run away from it because of what they have done. Your grace is sufficient. So save the lost today, Lord. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for this great salvation, how awesome it is. And it just describes, just proclaims your greatness and brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.